So I'm just going to give a quick introduction on yourself, literally who you are, yeah? Cool. Uh, I won't put in there legend, best broker, best lender and prime minister. I, I, was, look, I, was, I was most <laughs> looking forward to that. That's what I find is even. Hello and welcome to the Ark Co podcast. My name is Matthew Yassin, a director in the structured finance team. Hello, I'm Andrew Robinson. I'm CEO of Ark Co. The team here at Ark Co thought we'd put together a podcast to illustrate the thoughts and feelings that are going through the commercial finance world today. What we'd like to achieve is get to understand better some industry figureheads and get to know their journey that they've been on over the last 10 to 15 years. And secondly, we'd like to understand where the industry is going in education of the next generation in the financial services sector. And conclusively, we'd like you to rate, review and subscribe and tell all your colleagues as this will help us spread the message that we want and educate others. And most important of all, please enjoy listening to Andrew and I talk about the financial world. Joining me today at the Ark & Co podcast is Danny Waters, CEO of the Enra Group. Enra Group consists of Enterprise, West One, Vantage and Aura. So Danny, it's great to have you in and welcome. Thank you for the invitation. <laughs> no problem. Over the last 10 to 15 years... You've probably been uh, the most successful and consistent people in the financial services industry. So talk us through that journey, how it all started, and what's your secret behind it? I'm not necessarily sure I've been one of the most successful, but thank Come you on, for, 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 for <laughs> the kind words. Um, so a little bit about my story, which is, I guess, what, what you want to hear. Um, I, I left school at 18 and... Um, started to work in mortgage-related financial services. So that's the first big decision that I made in, in adult life, which was, do I go to university or do I go and try and make my way in the world? And what was the big uh, turner for you? Well, I actually think I was just done with education. And part of me thought that one of the things that I could do is go and work for a year and then maybe do some traveling and maybe then go back to university. But life just doesn't pan out as you anticipate. And for me, what I did is I went and worked in a, um, a fast-growing mortgage uh, business, which was Enterprise Finance, the business that we own today. Um, and it was at a time in the market, I guess it was 2002, 2003. So that was a real buoyant period in the mortgage industry. We had the subprime market really starting to uh, develop and innovate itself. The bits that I was involved in, which was second mortgages, bridging financing and commercial loans, they were becoming a bit more sophisticated and also a, a bit more interesting. Um, the way that lenders funded themselves was becoming more innovative, which meant that there was just more capital in the system, which was good news for everyone in the industry. It was fantastic times, wasn't it? It, 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 it was really, it was, it was really good times. So I guess the 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 story that I'm trying to tell is I got given this opportunity and pretty early on I thought to myself, well, the prospects of me going to university, studying for three or four years, racking up an enormous amount of debt and then coming out to get a lesser opportunity than the one that I have today didn't really seem to make much sense to me. So we, I decided to, to, to stay where I was um, you know, try and learn a business from the ground up because I really did come in at the ground up. I was, you know, making people's tea and also doing the photocopying. 
Um, and uh, within a short period of time, you know, I managed to, to develop and evolve myself and take advantage of the opportunity that I was given. Excellent. So, and after you kind of made people's tea, yeah. cut your teeth, understood the market, you got or you saw an opportunity in 2007 and eight time. Yep. And that was to lead an MBO. Well, it was a little bit later than that. I mean, the, the, the backdrop to the story is, is that um, the, the wider business um, went through a private equity transaction and sold a minority stake to a company called uh, Promethean Investments. And then, unfortunately, the subprime crisis uh, came along and all of the liquidity disappeared from the mortgage market. Uh, the independent business that I was running was was still profitable and still had, you know, um, a sustainable future. And so about 2008, 2009, I guess, uh, I seized the opportunity to, to lead a management buyout. Um, and, you know, that was really me going it alone for, for the first time. Uh, previously, I was a senior person, uh, an employee in a business. I, uh, you know, I was a board member, but um, I, I liked the prospect of me being in control of my own destiny because, you know, you live or die by your own decisions then as opposed to someone else's. Absolutely. What goes through your mind, though, from at that stage where you're, you're working for someone else, you want to seize this opportunity, uh, but then suddenly you're going to buy them out but then take on the risk. You know, you've got people to pay. Yeah. So what goes through that mind then? So there's an element of that. Well, I guess I always treated it like it was my own business anyway. So, uh, you know, that was one of the fundamental philosophies that I had, which was drummed into me for, from, from an early stage. You treat this business like it's your own money. And, um, you know, that's a, a message that I give um, our staff today. So the, the mindset wasn't, too, too different actually. And I also think that, you know, I was 24, 25 years of age, I guess. Um, so I was relatively young in terms of commitments. I didn't have any dependence or anything. So if you're going to take risk at any point in life, do it while you're young, right? <laughs> That's fantastic to hear. Um, Many people do it too late. Absolutely. And also, you know, I had bundles of energy. I had enough acumen and, uh, experience and, and also, uh, network within the industry that I was in. And actually the the old saying, you know, in terms of with adversity comes opportunity was definitely true in, in our situation. Yeah, no, I completely agree. So when you led this MBO, what was uh, the day you took the reins? How did that feel like to walk back in that office and think, this is my gig now? Probably if you want the uh, if you want the honest uh, truth, Look, I, I mean, I, I was already the MD of the business, so that all that really changed was, you know, the share certificates in the uh, business got um, nudged around a, a, a little bit. But I suppose I wanted that opportunity as well. So there needs to be something from within you that actually wants that opportunity because. You know, it's not like a promotion if you're an employed person where sometimes they can be pushed upon you because your employer thinks that you're best positioned to take that particular role. This was something that I actually wanted for myself. I believed it would allow me to um, make all of the decisions within the business. And then ultimately, if they were successful, I'd reap the rewards. 
um, entirely myself. And if they failed, well, I've got no one else to blame. So it, it, it wasn't such a tremendous leap for me because, as I said, I always felt like I, I treated the business as if I owned it anyway. And did that role or did your role change? So a lot of people always say, uh, and I had to do it personally. I was a broker before I set up Arkin Co. Making that change from broker into management. Did you change that day when you took the uh, reins or, uh, or how did you evolve? No, it was over a period of time. So my, my role really didn't change. I probably had to do a bit more shareholder stuff, you know, governance, um, updates, managing investor relationships. Um, but I quite enjoyed that because that was a new challenge for me. But uh, fundamentally, my role didn't change overnight. It was something that was a gradual process as we deepened the bench within our business that I could, you know, take a step back and then start to be a, a what would be a more conventional CEO as opposed to, you know, the guy who's the main deal maker in the firm or, 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 or whatever it may be. So moving forward, once you took the reins, you wanted to build out a group. What was the next step? Well, the next step was just to work hard, right? So <laughs> it was... It's a it, good base. It was... <laughs> From 2009, so not much was happening in the mortgage industry, but I always had this belief that green shoots would start to appear um, in the not-too-distant future. So being a bit lucky around timing is also, I think, really important. Um, we, we, we worked hard. We got our heads down. We understood what the core of the business was about, and it was a, it was a service-related business, and it was also one that needed to go out and um, have extensive distribution. So, so we focused on, on those two things, really. Um, and then, I suppose, because of the financial crisis wiped out a lot of our competition, we had a bit of a first-mover advantage. And that was then an opportunity to really go and grow the business as markets started to recover and, um, you know, different opportunities presented themselves to us. Didn't you move into lending? So, but off your own balance sheet? Yeah, so, well, I, I mean, not overnight, but um, within a pretty short period of time, I think it would have been a couple of year, years, we, we made the broken business a, a success. And therefore, we started to accumulate a balance sheet. And one of the things that, you know, having lived through the financial crisis, I was always quite conscious of is I wasn't going to suck lots of money out of the business. For me, it was always about reinvestment and how we can move on to the next thing. Um, so, so what we did is we built up a, a, a balance sheet. It was relatively modest at the time, um, but still sufficient enough that we could get going in, in some bridge lending. Um, we started to make a few bridging loans um, the nice thing about bridging finance, why, why we looked at that is, A, we thought the market was going to be supportive and going to grow. Um, it was also quite short term in, in terms of the uh, average behavioral maturity of the loan. So you could season a loan book pretty quickly. And candidly, the risk-adjusted returns looked really attractive at that particular time in the cycle. So we put some uh, money into lending in, in bridging finance. I guess that was probably 2010-11. Um, continued to reinvest profits. And maybe in about 2013, we had a relatively small loan book, um, which was funded with our own 
money. It's probably about 10 million quid in size. How did that feel? 10 million pounds of your own balance sheet committed? I, I don't think, and this is something that we're quite guilty of, I don't actually think that we ever stood back to reflect. I think we were always looking forward as opposed to backwards. And that was, you know, one of the things that actually drove the business forward was, um, you know, the, the tunnel vision in terms of how we are going to develop and how we're going to keep the business evolving and growing. Um, but, but for then, you know, we, we went out and we'd done a fundraising process. Um, we sold a minority stake to uh, a private equity firm. And the reason really is because we thought that there was a land grab opportunity in the marketplace and that mortgages is a very capital intensive business. So there's only so far you can go on your own dime and you can't really grow as quickly as you would like without taking external investment. So we, we, we did that and, you know, the business plan was to uh, go and turn that 10 million pounds loan book into a hundred million. I think the earnings in the business were about 4 million of EBITDA at the time. And we said, if we get to 12, we'd be delighted. And we thought there was a really clear path of being able to do that. And, you know, thankfully we, we, we overachieved the plan. And how did, um, when you went to, when you grow a business, you go in to pitch for private equity investment or pitch for, pitch for funding lines. How did you, did you employ someone? Did you work with your partners, your co-directors? How do you do that? So um, I was very lucky, actually. Well, firstly, you have to appoint someone. So you need a debt advisory firm or you need a corporate finance firm yeah. um, who are essentially brokers um, to, to put together the, you know, IM and also to, to gather all the data that institutions are going to need to make investment decisions. And it was honestly like a really daunting process because I'd never really been through that before directly. I'd heard snippets about it. I guess you're on the other side. You're a born broker and suddenly you're the client. Yeah. And <laughs> also for me, it was rocking into some of the largest institutions in the world and asking them for like tens or hundreds of millions of pounds. I, I always felt that was quite daunting. And I also thought because of my age, I was going to get laughed out of the room really quickly. They probably thought you came along to make their tea. Well, I remember, <laughs> I, I remember, I remember one, one, one lady, I, I won't name her, but um, we're friends and um, she, she said to me, when you rocked into the meeting, I actually thought you were the analyst. <laughs> um, not, not, not the CEO. And when you'd done the introduction, I was like a little bit taken back. And that was her first, um, that was her first, you know, experience of meeting me. And, you know, she was just honest enough to say that most people um, would have thought it. But I also had a, a really amazing uh, mentor at that time, a guy called David Campbell, who was chairing the business. And David had been through this process many times before he led a very successful management buyout of uh, a company called Tilney and sold it quite shortly after to, to Deutsche for, for a lot of money. And uh, he already had relationships with some of these people. He was a smooth operator, I remember, in, in terms of the management presentations. And I just kind of thought to myself, I really need to do it like him. If I do it like him, then I'm going to be fine. And um, 
you know, it, there's a lot of anxiety. It's, it's, it's nerve-wracking. But when you become familiar with the environment and the process, it, it just becomes natural to you. Yeah, I'd say mentoring is very important and sometimes overlooked. Uh, and I say from my side, from a business owner, uh, and learning from it, it's the acceptance of a mentor. And to move forward, I think you need to accept sometimes uh, you need to listen to other people and their experience. Do you know what yeah. that comes down to in my view? What's that? Respect. Yeah. You need to be able to respect the guy that's giving you the advice and also have some kind of feeling that he's walked in your shoes. Um, and also there's that natural chemistry you need to like people. You know, if you take an instant dislike to the person who should be your your mentor. I mean, you probably don't let them become your mentor, but sometimes, you know, people are appointed to boards as non-execs and things like that. So, I, I mean, I just think it's about being really, really comfortable with people and having mutual respect. Absolutely. So you walk into uh, a big corporate advisor, advisory, very shiny, big office in the city, yep. looking about 12 years old, uh, and you walk out with a few hundred million. Not a bad day's work. No, it wasn't quite that big at the time. <laughs> um, I, I, think, I, think we, I think we raised, uh, if memory serves me correctly, about 23 and a half million quid in uh, the equity investment. And we then raised some debt alongside it, which probably would have only been 30 to 50 million, I guess. Um, and then it was built incrementally over a period of time. But it, it was brilliant, right? It was brilliant in one breath and daunting in the next. I remember when you sign these transactions, it always seems to be at 3 a.m. in the morning um, because the lawyers who charge you astronomical fees just want to demonstrate that they are working really bloody hard for you. Yeah, they've probably been asleep since nine o'clock and set their alarm. Yeah, so um, so I remember coming out of the, the, the city offices and just thinking, I, I didn't know whether to do cartwheels down the street or cry, because part of it was a, a bit of a transformational experience where, you know, I was finally allowing someone else to come into the business and and, you know, help shape the strategic direction and um, that to me was was a big thing yeah that's an important point now so you've got all of this uh, money you come out fully um fully armored how do you deploy it what's the strategy well i mean the strategy at the time we we were pretty well positioned in the broken market and we already had this lending um business going but I mean, it was at a different scale to what we were going to have to do. So again, good old fashioned hard work. Um, we already had articulated the strategy and you know, people had brought into the strategy that, that we had outlined. So it was about going and executing it. So we, we, we went and done that. Um, there was then a, a, an opportunistic investment that came up where we acquired a, a business called West One Loans. Um, and that was a, a controversial deal at the time, I think it was fair to say, you know, people were unfamiliar with brokers owning lenders or vice versa. Um, and how do you perceive that now? It's a thing I come across each time. Is it conflicted? Yeah, I mean, not for us. Uh, it, I, I suppose there's conflict in loads of areas of financial services. It's how you manage conflict. That's the important thing. So it's a management within it as well. So it's how you are and how you handle your business. Completely. It's all about the compliance framework that you have within your business. So today, and it's easier because, you know, we're, we're a lot bigger, but I mean, they're completely segregated. 
the lending businesses and the broking businesses um, operate in a very independent way. We own more than one broking business. We own more than one lending business. Um, so it, it's just a portfolio of um, mortgage assets that we own, platforms, if you want. So with regards to developing you know, the, the loan book, mm. you know, how do you go around developing products? What do you do as a lender? Well, I mean, we had a lot of runway in bridging finance because we were very small. Um, so the ambition was to go and grow in bridging finance because it was the product that we thought looked most attractive to us. We all already had a commanding position in the market and um, we, we believed that there was a supportive environment for us to grow into. So the market was growing. It's easier to grow your business when you're in a, in a growing market, right? Um, and there wasn't much in terms of product design or anything like that. It was, here's the product, because fundamentally, most bridging lenders look the same in terms of products. We're all in and around the same LTVs. You know, we're all in and around the same pricing. So what's really important to customers, it's certainty of finance, it's speed. Um, so focus on the things that are really important in that product and do them very well, um, which, which I think we did. Uh, also, the acquisition of, of West One Loans really turbocharged our growth. So it gave us access to new distribution channels that we might not have had um, had we uh, just continued on our, our merry way without making any acquisitions. And then it's about, you know, building a team and making sure that you've got like-minded people around you who are equally as motivated to share in the vision. That's an important point. You know, I'm massively about the team. Yeah. Um, but how do you recruit? What's uh, With me, it's about the person itself, the drive. Um, sometimes not recruiting, or many times not recruiting within the industry. What do you look in, you know, what do you look out for in people when you, when you bring them in? If I look back and, you know, we probably employ 200 people today. And I look back at who has been the best employees that we've had over a period of, let's say, the last seven years. It's often the people who have developed within the business. Um, you know, not too dissimilar to the story that I've just told you. People have come in and, you know, they might have come in at a graduate underwriting type level. And then as they learn more about the business and they develop their ambition and we grow which leads to opportunity they go in and fill that gap they're often the stars and i'm i'm a big advocate of hiring people both outside the industry and people who you know are, are, are young ambitious there's too many people in our industry in my view who talk about the last five years rather than the next five years yeah. and um you know, every time I recruit a BDM, they always talk about where they'd been previously and what they had managed to deliver, and they never focus on what they want to do next, which for me is um, a mistake. So I think recruiting people from outside of the industry and bringing new talent into it um, is important. And we've just been through a few situations where, you know, we've had we've had a team of people in place and they've been incumbent in that position for a long period of time. And they get a bit fatigued and, um, you know, tired. And sometimes having a change of that um, 
or of, of that management is often a great thing because it just freshens things up and brings a new energy in, in into the business. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of that. Do you think, you know, with it in the Enra group, you've got different, you talk about promoting people within, which is excellent. You know, it's very, if you set a right structure, can drive them forward, really advance their careers. Having a group structure gives a lot of opportunities. Yeah. Yeah, it does. I mean, like we see people, so as you get a bit bigger, um, you know, retaining staff is equally as important as uh, recruiting new ones. And what we see is that having some diversity amongst the business, we get, you know, people who arrived in a role um, in one side of the business who quickly realize that that isn't really for them, but they do fancy an opportunity elsewhere within the group. And that's great for us because previously what would have happened, the guy would have joined or the girl would have joined, realized it wasn't for them and then they would have left. Um, and that's expensive, it's time consuming and all of those things. Whereas if you can say, if the person says, I like the people, I like the culture, I just don't like the job that I'm doing because I don't think it suits my skill set, but I do think that one does, and you can put them into that position, well, that becomes you know a problem solved, doesn't it? And I think you know in our industry, there is a bit of a brain drain, and if we can bring young, hungry, ambitious, intelligent, hardworking people into the industry, then the industry will be a better place for it. Yeah, 100% agree, and we'll touch on that a bit later. So moving the Enra group forward, you, know, you get your first credit, large credit lines, you're deploying that, then you want to go to the next stage. How do you do that? Well, as I said, uh, the... The acquisition of West One was a was a pivotal point for us because uh, it really accelerated the growth in the bridging loan book, um, and it was it was quite incremental then. So you know it was about getting from a hundred million to two hundred million to two fifty to five hundred in terms of loan book sizes, and that's what we we started to think about. And then you know the bridging markets. There's a lot of people in the bridging market who think the bridging market's pretty big. But in terms of the universe, it's quite a small market. And, you know, it's probably five, six, seven billion, depending on who you listen to in terms of uh, origination. I know a lot of people think it's bigger than that because of all of the private lending that goes on. But I'm talking about, you know, institutional type players. Um, and then it was a case of, well, look, we're, we're becoming reasonably large in this particular market. How do we take the framework that we've got and look at adjacent markets and try to be as successful in, in those niche undisturbed areas of the mortgage market like we found with bridging finance? And that was product diversification, which I guess is what you were asking about uh, a little earlier. And then what happened is we thought, okay, well, look at all of these underserved areas of the mortgage market. Where do we think that we have uh, mispriced risk or good risk-adjusted returns? Where do we think that we can access relatively cheap capital? What's our skill set and how do those things all align? And we made the decision to, to go into the second mortgage um, market. And that was also about, you know, bridging is a, is a great asset class, um, but it's short term, as we know in in nature, or at least it should be if you're doing <laughs> it right. Um, and to try and improve your quality of earnings, 
and have longer term lending products was something that I thought would complement our business pretty well. Um, so we moved into to the second mortgage market, hired a great team of people that, um, you know, helped us uh, establish a position in, in the market. And we managed to grow to probably what's a top three player in, in, in under a couple of years. So, you know, I think it's a fantastic market to be in now. The second, second mortgage market, second charge market, different ways of doing it. But I, I just see, um, this is comes back to advisory side from lenders and education. You know, the market's been undereducated on second charges, but also brokers or advisors have been undereducated on how to structure them. So you're now seeing structured bridge loans, which is really, it's only first and second charge, and it's always existed. But the blended rate of that first and second charge bridge is really, really driving the market. I I think it's a fantastic market. and, and, And also the more retail side of the market, you know, there's never been a better time to be a borrower. I mean, we, we lend in into the second charge market at 4 or 5%, you know, per annum um, with relatively small fees and no ERC. So, I mean, in terms of being a borrower in that market, I know mortgage, the whole mortgage industry has a low interest rate environment at the moment, but I cut my teeth on second charges. And when I started doing this back in 2002, 2003, I mean, you know, the average interest rate would have probably been 12 or 13%. Um, you know, it's now probably two thirds discounted um, of that. So it, it, it's, it's an interesting market. Leads itself to opportunity, but I would also say, let's focus on that first charge uh, side. And with the first charge lending and where your funds come from, uh, from an advisor's point of view, what we've seen is a lot more institutional funding, bank funding, yeah. uh, which is a lot stricter on lending criteria coming into that first charge bridge market, which if we look at that specifically uh, from our side is uh, leading to lower loan to values as a more conservative. And that's paving the way for the second charge or the blended first and charge sec- um, first and second charge bridging debt. Is that true? Is that how the, where the funding comes from? Well, look, I think whenever you borrow money from large institutions who aren't that close to the market, they want to have necessary control around what you are doing as a lender. And that's, that's absolutely appropriate and right. I think what it ultimately comes down to is having diversity of funding. So typically... Funding from the large clearing banks tends to be relatively cheap, but you're quite right in terms of what you're saying. It's less flexible because they put a framework and parameters around what you can and what you can't do. Ultimately, as a lender, in my shoes, you just want to lend to good credit-worthy customers. Um, And we know in bridging finance, to pigeonhole people and put them into a box is pretty difficult because, you know, no two transactions are, are the same. Um, so there you have other pools of capital which tend to be a bit more expensive but much more flexible in terms of nature and um, having diversity you know different pockets of capital to to suit different uh, circumstances I think is quite important in building a scalable and large bridging lender. Absolutely it's one thing we look at from an advisory point of view is 
where your funds are coming from and longevity in the market. If people have uh, one line of funding and the appetite goes from that funding, they're no longer around. But I think that's you doing a very good job for your customers because on the whole, when we're speaking to brokers, I mean, sometimes they're not taking in that type of level of detail into consideration. What they're looking at is they're looking at what's the day one lend, what's the interest rate, how much leverage can I squeeze out of this transaction? Whereas, you know, you guys might be saying, well, it's a relationship, it's not just transactional. And therefore, there's no point taking 75% loan to GDV off of these guys if they're going to make your drawdowns uh, painful or if they're not going to be here in a more extreme situation in 12 months' time to be able to finance you through your project. So I think that's where the real quality end of the advising market versus, you know, the not-so-sophisticated end of the market differ and, you know, we need more people like you to, to be doing that job. Thank you very much. Okay, let's go back on your journey. Um, so what was the lowest point in your journey and how did you manage yourself through it? I think the lowest point on my journey would have been in the, in, in the crisis. I mean, you know, I was just battered and bruised every day. You know, 2007 to 2000 and probably late eight, just when I thought it couldn't get any worse or more stuff couldn't go wrong. And I'm talking about lenders retreating from the market, you know, people going into administration. Uh, it did. And ultimately, what, what we did is we just cut our cloth accordingly. So we right-sized the business for the size of the market opportunity and uh, was really responsive to, to that. We didn't bury our head in the sand and say, you know what, this is going to be a short and sharp recession and then everything's going to be fine. It was a case of let's cut your cloth accordingly, as I said. Well, I think, I think in a business, any business, when you go through hard times, one of the hardest things I'd say is getting up in the morning, coming back to the uh, Oki, as I call it, in darts and uh, wanting, to, wanting to go again. Well, I definitely remember being a lot fitter then. <laughs> than I was than, than, than I than I am today because maybe you've had some hair work as yeah, well. Yeah, <laughs> I, I would spend I'd spend more time in the gym. I'd need much more of a release than I do today. No one had any budget to do any corporate hospitality or or um, you know any other expensive stuff, which was which was rife in the industry uh, pre the crisis. So yeah, I mean I'm I'm sure I was in tip top shape at that point. What do you wish you had known uh, what you know now back then? Sometimes when I like reflect, maybe I took some chips off the table just a bit too soon. Isn't that greed? I don't know. I, it, I, I'm pragmatic in terms of my view. So, you know, I looked at all of the risks. I looked at the opportunity and I was very happy with the decision that I made, and I'm still happy today. But there is an element of me that just thought, well, if I really understood the financing market like I know now, I could have probably kept complete ownership of the business and still managed to grow it. Um, but actually, do I have any regrets, or, or, or would I change the journey? Well, no. It's been a it's been a great journey for me. When I started this at like 18 years of age, did I think I would be 
sitting here talking to you today? Um, probably not. Well, 18, I was at school. Well, I was actually working in a factory. <laughs> so definitely not. But a few years later, I remember when I was broking and um, when I hear sometimes I had a competitor I was competing against, it was sometimes or a lot of the time was your name. I was thinking, oh God, Danny Waters is on this one. Yeah, well, and you know, <laughs> you probably didn't think differently. Yeah, or I, yeah abs- absolutely not. I just thought, where's my sharp elbows? Don't get him out of the way. Um, you but, probably thought that's pretty easy. I'll beat Andrew Robinson, no problem. No, I, I mean, I, I was, I was relentless, but um, I, I never thought that. And you know, look at the the business that you've grown to today, which you know, in what you've done over the last few years is is incredible. I think what we've um, try to focus on is a bit like what we just said and what you've, what you've said is in regards to professionalism in the industry. What I've noticed from, I started in the industry in 2002 and mortgages weren't even licensed. MCOB only came in 2004. Uh, but there was a, a big shift or people, there was a reluctance to change in 2004. That changed, the industry got better. Um, the two, I, in my mind, 2008, 9, 10 was a good time for the market to uh, professionalize. And press the cleaner. reset button, right? Absolutely, 100%. And what we've seen in uh, advisory is a, high, a higher standard of um, advice given in the industry, market knowledge has gone up. And what that has done is uh, if people haven't changed with it, they've left the industry. So it's actually, in some ways, become narrower from an advisor's point of view. Yeah. Uh, but the good ones which are coming through it are getting better, more competitive. So for us, we, as Arkinco, we need to move forward. We need to change. We need to embrace it. And this is what excites me about the industry, is about the professionalism, uh, where we can go to the next stage. The younger people coming through, I think, have a great career path, yeah. where before... It was seen as you could come in, maybe earn some good money and exit. Mm-hmm. Now it's a true career. And for me, I'm, tr- I'm massively passionate about this industry. And it's great to see. I was doing a piece of work for Bridging and Commercial before, before I came here with um, a good friend of mine, Mark Goldberg. And we were asked the question about what do we, what gives us a kick? And, you know, part of what we were saying is developing young people and giving them an opportunity to to succeed um, really makes us smile and and I think that's just what what you've what you've said there absolutely uh, you know what sees me I think you see a team change over a period of time you know Arkenco has been going 11 years the team changes oh. it's how you uh, you said about change earlier on it's how you embrace it but now you see people coming through. The, the managers, the owners, uh, the people that have responsibility for the business have responsibility to change and embrace it. Yep. And what you're seeing is you're seeing people which come in, they embrace it. If they're passionate about it, that rubs off on how we uh, want to coach and train those guys. And when they do their first deal, when they, uh, when they do a, a good deal, and you see their paychecks because it's commission linked, uh, you can see the smile on the faces and how it does change lives. It does. And that, that's what drives me as an owner. Nothing to do with your own profits then. No, <laughs> well, they're reinvested. Yeah. Good for <laughs> it's, you. it's for the future growth. Yeah. Anyway, okay, Danny, well, thank you very much. Pleasure. It's been absolutely fantastic having you here. And just to finish it off, I'd like to say not many people add value to a sector. 
And over the last 10, 15 years, I think you've really added value to the sector, uh, both in the lending and the broking point of view. So thank you on that. I really appreciate that. Thanks for kind words. So thank you for listening, everyone. Uh, please subscribe via iTunes to ensure you receive all the notifications for when our next episodes land. Thank you.